Good morning, family. Can we go ahead and clap our hands and celebrate our worship team one more time? Really good. Really, really good. Hey, thanks so much for being here today. My name is Xavier. I have the express privilege of being the campus pastor at our Missouri City campus. I'm so grateful that uh, you have chosen to worship alongside us today. And whether you're joining us online or in person, uh, like I said, it is our privilege to be able to worship with you today. Uh, before we get started, can I need everybody to do me a favor, whether you're sitting at home or whether you're at our Missouri City campus or whether you're here in the room at Sugarland, I need you to take your right hand for me. I need you to lift it up in the air just like this right here and wave it at me. Okay, good to go. You can put it down. Uh, even at Missouri City, one, one, one last time. Everybody raise your right hand up in the air like this. Wave it at me. Wave it at me. There you go. There you go. And then you can put it down. Great. Um, I don't want you to be able to go home today without saying the pastor didn't move me. And so you are welcome. I have now moved you regardless of what we say today. You can tell everybody at church it was very moving. We moved a lot. Uh, <laughs> Good. Hey, we're starting a brand new series today. It's called Our Rescue, and I was actually thinking about uh, a story in my own life. So I grew up loving the water. My parents are both uh, military veterans, 20-plus years, and uh, so we grew up uh, living uh, in spaces where we, we frequently went to the beach or we went on base and went swimming on base or whatever it is. And so my parents taught me how to swim from a very young age. I'm talking really young. Not like young, young, like the people who throw their infants into like the 10 foot pool, like not that young, but like five and six, like I can make my own decisions on being able to swim. And so I remember growing up in and around the water, we loved it. And I remember taking swim lessons, you would kind of graduate up through. So they would teach you how to hold your breath. And then they would teach you how to do the motions. And then they would let you swim in water that you could stand up in. And then eventually, if you kept passing all of those tests, they would let you jump off the diving board. And my older brothers, I was the youngest. And so my older brothers had passed every test with flying colors. They were amazing athletes. And now I was on my way to try to do the same. And I passed the test, flying colors again. And so now me and my older brothers were all four years apart. So I'm around five-ish and then it goes up from there. And we're all jumping off the diving board into the 10 foot and we're swimming over. And then they start doing flips and tricks, but I'm still just toddling to the end and I jump off the diving board or jump off the diving board and I swim to the end. But this last time in particular, I jumped off the diving board and I'm swimming to the end. And something about my brother's face looked a little panicked or worried. I don't know what it is. Maybe it was just ugly, but I looked up and tried to grab his hand and I just forgot how to swim. Like I was trying to get out of the water and I just forgot how to swim. And so in this 10 or 12 foot pool, I just start sinking to the, to the bottom and I am floundering and like gasping and my water, the water is filling up my lungs. I am drowning. I am stuck. Everything that I thought that I had learned before, none of it is coming. I'm, I'm not thinking well enough. Like maybe I should just hit the bottom and then kick back up, but I'm only like three feet tall. That's going to take a long time. Eventually, and I I do mean eventually. I feel like I waited on her quite some time now. I feel like I was too near to death for her not to be in the water already. But eventually the lifeguard jumps down off of the uh, lifeguard contraption and pulls me <laughs> and then pulls me up out of the water, gets me on the side and is making sure I'm okay. I'm hyperventilating. My brothers are asking me, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? After I finally got it all together, my parents get over and they're talking to me and they ask me this question. They say, hey, what went wrong? What happened? And I start to tell them all of the things that went wrong. Uh, I tell you this story because if we were to take this story and zoom it out and make it the story of our lives, this series is about how you and I jumped into a situation 
uh, that's this life. And we have things that we do wrong and that would be sin. And essentially we start sinking and we start drowning. And the story of the gospel is how God essentially jumped out of heaven and pulled us up out of a situation that we ourselves willingly jumped into. And so this series, Our Rescue, is about that story, about how this God, who we just spent the last three or four weeks introducing, is now stepping down out of heaven off the throne to rescue you and I from the penalty of our sin. And to jump in week one, the question we're asking ourselves is the same question that my parents asked me after I finally got got it together and wasn't dying. Is this, what went wrong? We, we grew up in church all the time, and even the question that people ask you all the time is, hey, are you saved? Are, are, you, are you a Christian? And then you, you start to have to ask the question, what does it mean to be saved? What am I, what am I saved from? What went wrong? If, if God is perfect, how do we have this earth that exists with all of these different things that stop us from experiencing perfection? And so that's what we want to dive in today. So if you have your Bible, we're going to go to Genesis chapter number one, uh, verse number one. And your first fill in the blank is this. We're going to talk about God's creation. Genesis chapter number one and verse number one. I was at a youth conference one time teaching and I said, hey, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. And a kid screams out over everybody. He said, hey, what page is that on? Like, I I don't know how to tell you, sir. Um, Every Bible is different. I I don't know. Maybe, Maybe one or two or I don't know. Okay, here we go. We see these words in the very first chapter, the very first verse in all of the Bible, in the beginning, God. And so the Bible opens up with this introduction. The first person that we meet is God. And we spent the last couple of weeks introducing you to God. And so if you haven't seen those, you definitely want to go back in and watch those sermons. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for the next couple of verses, we see them break down. The Bible breaks down how God did it. It talks about how God starts speaking things into existence. God says, let there be light. God says, and he creates all of these things simply by speaking. And it'll tell you it was morning and day and God would look out at what he created that day and he would go, this thing is good. And so on day one, he created the light. And then on the second day, uh, he created the sky. And on the third day, he created dry land and seas and plants and trees. And, And on the fourth day, he created the sun, the moon and the stars. And then on the fifth day, he created the creatures that live in the sea and the creatures that fly. And then on the sixth day, he created the animals that live on the on the land. And then finally, after speaking all of these other things into existence, including the very light of the world, the Lord fashions man with his hands from the dirt of the ground and breathes into him life, and man becomes a created being. And we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 27. It says this, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. Everybody say image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. And then he does something that nobody could have anticipated. He doesn't just create these humans to be nothing. He gives them a responsibility. In Genesis chapter one, verse 28, God blesses them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That fill in the blank is subdue. The next fill in the blank is rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky 
and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so in these first couple of verses, we see God create and we get some attributes of man, attributes of human beings that this is what you and I are, I would hope, if you're an alien, don't tell us, but you and I, we're created human beings. We get some attributes of man. And the first one is this, is that man is created in God's image. Now, I want you to imagine for a second, because if you lived in the ancient biblical times, the likelihood is that you would live under the authority of a king. And these kings would often call themselves gods. Because why? They would decide what was right and wrong. They would have ultimate authority. They would sit amongst the people. They could tell people what to do. They could give orders. And these kings actually would then start to build these statues of themselves called idols. And people would literally have to worship and bow down to this king because he was the ultimate authority. And the crazy thing about this is, is that when you see the children of Israel in the Bible, those are God's chosen people. They never saw their king as a god. Why? It was really because two reasons. One, they didn't believe that the infinite God can be uh, created into any one finite thing. But number two, and maybe even more profound is they didn't believe that you and I should create images of God because they believed that God had already created images of himself. And so there was no need to recreate something that God had already done. And when did God do that? God did it in Genesis chapter 1 when he created you and I to be his image, his likeness, his representation here on the earth. And so now, all of a sudden, this thing, this, this choice, this, this rule, this authority that used to be relegated exclusively to the king of kings... God has now given humans part of his authority and part of his responsibility. And so that's your next fill in the blank. He, he had given them free will to rule. Genesis chapter 2 verse number 15 says this. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So he gives the man free will. He gives him this authority. Go out, be married, do whatever, like, hey, be creative with it. He, he doesn't tell him how he should tend the garden. He just says, hey, go work, go, go, go be fruitful, go multiply, expand your family. I, I just have one thing. I just have one thing that I need you to do. There's a tree over there in the middle of the garden. It represents the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to eat from that tree. So God is essentially saying, hey, I'm going to give you all of this authority. Here's the only thing I don't want you to do. I don't want you to redefine good and evil in your own eyes. I want you to trust what I have said is the right way to live. I have outlined for you how you should rule, how you should reign, how you should grow, how you should multiply. And my only request is that you don't start thinking that you know more than I know and that you are better than me and that you should be the one who defines good and evil. And as long as you do that, everything will go great. It's almost like if you've, you've been a teenager before, if you have younger siblings, or maybe you have teenagers right now as kids, if you ever leave to go on date night or go out of town and you leave the 16-year-old in charge, 
right? And, and you tell them, hey, everybody now, you answer to the 16-year-old. They are parents for the next two and a half hours. And when you say it, you almost see the 16-year-old light up and they start to expand a little bit and then they start to think about all the things that they're going to be able to do now as parents. But then what you do is you pull the 16-year-old aside and you give them the game plan. You make it idiot-proof. I think um, foolproof is what I should say. I don't know if I can say idiot in church. Sorry, Pastor Johnny. I go back to Missouri City after this. Um, <laughs> you make it foolproof for your teenager. And what do you do? You, you outline it for me. You say, hey, you can do everything. Just don't start making up new rules. I've, I'm, I'm already a good parent. I know everything to do. As long as you follow the game plan, everything will go well. And inevitably, every time. You come home and the 16-year-old has your five-year-old doing push-ups. The seven-year-old is doing wall sits and they've redefined bedtimes. They've decided that they're going to rule in whatever way they want to do. And the truth is I'm giving you all of this background because I want us to see ourselves in this creation story. The truth is that the picture we get with Adam and Eve is gardening. They take care of the garden. They make it better over time. But that thing for you and I is our day-to-day -day life, that God has entrusted you with your life, and he says, hey, I'm going to let you rule. I'm going to give you free will and ability to make decisions. All I am asking is that you do not redefine the way you think you should live, that you do not redefine good and evil in your own eyes, that you stick to the plan and rule in the way that I have desired for you to rule. And sometimes that goes well. And when it does, we create wonderful things. We create families and communities and all of those things. And sometimes we don't get it right. And, and human beings, we create horrible things like licorice flavored candy. Like, I don't know why I know what proof that sin exists in the world. But, but the point is, sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. And now you see the, the choice that Adam and Eve have is the same choice that you and I have day to day today. That they're in this life and they have a decision to make. Do I trust God at his word and bring all of my life under the lordship of God or do I use my free will to do what I want for my own personal gain to redefine good and evil in my own eyes. And they ultimately get to the point where they're going to make some decisions because they're going to live in this garden. And then in chapter three, we see another person introduced in the Bible. Because the, the first thing we talked about is God's creation. But in the beginning of chapter three, we meet the serpent who we now know is Satan. And so now we want to talk about Satan's creativity. The first one is God's creation. The second point is Satan's creativity. Now, Eve, um, what happens, we see uh, Satan get introduced, and I, I wish we could literally do a whole sermon series on Satan, and I wish I could walk you through that, but that wouldn't be a sermon series. It'd be a systematic theology class, and, and if you want to do that, like I encourage you to go do that and learn on your own, but the, the, the cl quick Cliff Notes version is that, one, we believe Satan is a created being. He is not an omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful being and spiritual being like God. Uh, scholars believe the widely accepted 
view of Satan biblically is that he was an angel created who also made a decision whether or not he wanted to follow God. He thought he could be like God, and as a result, he was punished. And now we see Satan forced to roam the earth and relegate it to where God allows him uh, to be. And he uses his time and energy and all of his uh, influence to try to get you and I, because he's a spiritual being, not a physical being, to get you and I to act outside the will of God, to, just like Adam and Eve, redefine good and evil for ourselves. So Eve is talking to Satan and, and, and he's saying, hey, he's talking to service and he's saying, hey, did God really say like that you were going to die? Like die, die. Or like, did he say, did he say you couldn't look at it? He, and he's trying to get Eve to make these decisions. And then we see her make a decision in Genesis chapter three, verse six and seven. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pause, that's why you got to be careful what you look at because she saw, okay. And that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, prior to this moment, they had always been naked, but there was no shame. There was no guilt. There was nothing to hide. It was pure innocence. But they make this decision to redefine good and evil in their own eyes. And all of a sudden, this, this, this flood of emotions and, and, and pain and all of these things that they have never felt before starts rushing into their head. And it started because Eve ignored some red flags. First of all, Eve, maybe I'm not the expert, but maybe I don't talk to the serpent. I mean, I don't see anybody else talking. It's like me and God. And then all of a sudden this serpent shows up. Maybe I watch who I talk to, but that doesn't matter. And my other red flag with Eve is like, Eve, do you not notice that this man only wants to talk to you when your husband is not around? And that's applicable even for today. I don't know if you're in the room today. Somebody keeps trying to talk to you and husband not around. Probably a red flag. Maybe you don't talk to that man, ladies. But, but the point is this. Eve ignores all of these red flags and doubt starts to creep into her head. And here's your fill in the blank. When it relates to following God's will, Doubt will often precede disobedience. Doubt will often precede disobedience. You and I don't walk down the street, slip on a banana peel, and end up in alcohol abuse. That's not how that happens. You and I start to doubt that we can deal with situations on our own and with the tools and resources that we have. And that doubt grows more and more and more and we lean further away from healthy ways to deal with things and further into unhealthy ways the doubt precedes the disobedience you and i don't slip and fall into extramarital affairs we start to doubt the person that we married whether it was the right decision whether they will be great for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. The task in front of us gets so big, we start to doubt, and the doubt precedes the disobedience. Take whatever it is that your sin of choice is, but your doubt about what God said will precede your disobedience to God's word. And that's exactly what we see happen to Eve. She ignores these red flags and she ends up doing what we would now refer to as sin. Now, you've never used the word sin outside of a church or like biblical context. 
The truth is, you have not been at work this week and there was a mistake on paragraph number two about an updated company policy and you emailed back your direct report and said, hey, I want you to know you send in this email. That's not what you do. You don't use that word. It's a biblical word and it's almost outdated because it's not something that we use all the time. So I want to give us a definition for what the Bible calls sin so that we're all on the same page about what sin is. The, the word that the Bible normally translates for sin is really not a spiritual word at all. It's the word kata. That's K-H-A-T-A. And it simply means to fail or miss the goal. It just means to fail or miss a goal. Like, for example, the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts who could sling a rock and knock a hair off somebody's head, and they would not kata. They would not miss. They were excellent in everything that they did. And so when we talk about sin in the Bible, it means that you and I have failed. We have missed a goal. What goal have we missed? What goal was laid out for us? Way back, Genesis chapter 1, verse number 27 and 28. You are created to be God's image and likeness on earth. And so hata or sin in the Bible is anytime you and I fail to live up to being images of God here on earth. The reason this is important is because sometimes we think about sin as action, but sin can also be a lack of action. Because if the Lord has said something about how you and I should treat or love our neighbors and we fail to do so, then we have missed the mark or goal. And so anytime we fail or miss the goal of living up to being images of God and representations of God here on earth, you and I have now missed and you and I have now failed. And we see this idea of missing and failing throughout the scripture. Adam and Eve missed or failed by redefining the knowledge of good and evil in their own eyes. Their children are faced with a similar situation. Cain and Abel are their two sons. Cain is faced with a similar choice because he's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother. And so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, sin, hata, is crouching at the door. It wants you. And we see sin now personified as this animal that is out to get each and every one of us. As a matter of fact, we see it even in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. And then in the New Testament, Paul uses the word harmatia, which is very similar, and he describes it as a power or force that rules us. His words are this, that we were slaves to sin. He would argue that sin lives inside of us. And so sin is present through the scripture. And, and here's the deal. You and I, we read the story of Adam and Eve and we say they had the perfect life. They only had one thing. They just could not define. They could not eat from this one tree and this one fruit. But here's what happened. I don't want you to judge them just yet. I want you to come here. I want you to come here. I want you to come here. Because the truth is that in your life and my life, we don't eat of the fruit of a tree. But what do we do? We redefine good and evil in our own heads on a day-to-day -day basis. We decide that what we want is more important than what God has created us for or is more important than God's will. How do we do it? We do it all types of ways. It shows up in your anger and wrath. 
You know what you do? You redefine good and evil, right and wrong, and you convince yourself that the person you're lashing out at deserves your anger and wrath. You redefine good and evil in your own head. The truth is, we do it when, we're, when, we, when we have a vice, something that you turn to when life gets hard. You've convinced yourself that this thing is something that I actually need. This one more time won't hurt me. You redefine good and evil in your own eyes. You have something in your life right now, if you think hard enough, where you've started to redefine good and evil. Maybe it is in the way that you treat people like, you know, the Bible says you're supposed to love everybody, treat everybody with respect and kindness and all of those things. And that was great until you met like your your new daughter-in-law. And now you're like, hey, I need to redefine this a little bit because she is just uh, somebody else. She is not a child of God. She might be a child of Satan. And so I'll treat her a certain way. And the point is, what do you do? You redefine how you should treat her right and wrong. Why? Because inside of you is the same desire that was in Adam and Eve, a desire to redefine good and evil so that you get to do what you want to do. You know what the Bible says about giving and tithing, but what do you do? You redefine that. You say, I don't need to give my money. Why? Because inside of you is a desire to redefine good and evil. It's the same thing that happens with me. One of my primary struggles is gluttony. I know I don't need all 40, the 48 pack of Reese cups that's in my pantry right now. I wish I was lying to you that they were not in there. I wish that they were not even open. I wish that I had not even purchased them. And I knew this, but what do I do? I redefine good and evil in my head. And on my way, on my way to bed, I don't eat one or two. I eat like six and I redefine. I know, whoa, 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 whoa. Somebody judged me. Don't you do that. I heard it. There was a gasp. There was an audible gasp. You might not have heard it online, but I heard it. It's okay. I got some. Your sin is coming. Your sin is coming. I'm going to get to yours very soon. It's okay. You just wait. The point is, I struck, and you start to realize how every moment in your life, you make the same decision that Adam and Eve made. You redefine good and evil based on what feels best to you in the moment. There's a redefinition. And so now we've talked about how God had, uh, we talked about God's creation. We've talked about Satan's creativity. And, and then now I want to talk to us a little bit about man's consequence. And so Adam and Eve sinned. They made this decision and now they suffer some consequences. But not only do they suffer some consequences, you and I suffer some consequences. The Bible, I love the Bible. I, I really do uh, for multiple reasons, uh, not only because it's God's word, but because of the way the Bible communicates. The Bible often communicates in stories, themes, and patterns. And so you will see these same stories and themes and patterns repeated throughout the scripture. And you might not see the same words or language all the time, but you can easily pick up on the patterns. So we've picked up already this idea of gardening and ruling. It's something, it's a pattern that you and I continue. We've picked up this idea of a choice between deciding what is good and evil. And you and I see this pattern at the beginning of time and it is repeated 
throughout all of human history and it will be repeated throughout all of human history because God communicates in themes and patterns that are relatively easy to understand. And then we see man's consequence. I want to read something to you in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 through 14. We see the actions of Adam that now have consequences for us. Romans chapter 5. Verse number 12 says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men and women, that's you and I, because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of one who was to come. See, the pattern is that Adam and Eve had consequences for their sin. And you and I have consequences for our sin. And I want to give you two of these words that the Bible uses for their consequences. That first fill in the blank is the word iniquity. Iniquity. It's another word, once again, that we use in Christianity that you don't use day to day. Like your four-year-old never ran up to you and was like, oh, my iniquity. Like it's, they never... They don't talk like that. So I want to define this word iniquity to us as well. In the book of Psalms, David proclaimed that he was born in sin and shapen in iniquity. The word that the Bible uses for the word iniquity is the word avon, which at the root just means bent or crooked. And so iniquity is bent or crooked behavior. And so iniquity enters in the world through the action of Adam and Eve when they sin. But then the Bible talks about this idea of visiting someone's avon, someone's iniquity upon them. It means that now that you have made this iniquity up, you now have to deal with the weight and pressure of your sin and of your iniquity, of your crooked behavior and action. And so as we look around the world, everything that is crooked in behavior, everything that is not right is a result of an original crooked action John MacArthur said it this way there's this long quote he says all problems personal environmental all that is wrong evil immoral incomplete all that is decaying inferior failure disappointment weakness sadness sorrow pain disillusionment trouble discomfort remorse regret conflict hate jealousy envy bitterness vengeance fear crime uh, selfishness confusion lies all the way through all of these things at the end he says everything that fails to be as perfect as God is came from this one event because God created Adam and Eve to live in perfect symmetry with him And when they broke that trust, it's the word transgress. When they broke trust with God, he allowed them to sit in their iniquity and to deal with the consequences of their own action. They deserved it. And so Adam and Eve, you see, they they leave the Garden of Eden. They're disconnected from God, and now they're forced to work. They even have to deal with their sons being jealous of each other, and they deal with the very first murder in the Bible. One of their sons murders their other son, and if you could think how much pain that they've now caused themselves, why? Because of the consequences of their actions and the consequences of their sin. You might ask yourself now, hey, why wouldn't God just remove the consequences of their action? Because remember, where did the 
sin originate? It originated inside of Adam and Eve, inside of their hearts. And remember, metaphors and images, it originates inside of our hearts. So if you're in the room today and you're wondering why God doesn't remove evil, pestilence, pain, and all of that stuff from the world, it is because he would have to remove you. That is why we see these stories in the New Testament about Jesus saying that he's going to give us a new perfected body and all of those things. Why? Because he has to separate you from perfection because the day he removes evil, if you are connected to it, you also must be removed. And so this imperfection that we see in the world is a result of the sin that Adam and Eve committed and that you and I continue to perpetuate. And that second word, the second consequence, one of the consequences they have to deal with is this idea of exile. They are, they are forced to leave their perfect homes and wander aimlessly through the wilderness, fending for themselves, now growing their own food. They have to hunt for wild game. And they have to do all of these things. And sin enters the world. And what happens is you see them have these longings. Because prior to that, Adam could talk directly to God. And then you see that responsibility. You see that, that, you see that get removed. And now all of a sudden, humanity has to go through prophets and priests and, and, excuse me, and kings and judges. And they don't have their direct connection to God anymore. And they're longing for their relationship with God to be restored. And they try everything. They try sacrifices and they try living correctly, but they can never quite live up to perfection. But they're always searching for home. And so what happens is you see this idea of exile repeated throughout the scriptures. You see the children of Israel, they're in captivity And then you see Abraham talk about this promised land and Moses is now going to lead the children of Israel to where? Their new home. Why? Because their concept of home in their head is the Garden of Eden. So the promised land is a big deal because now he's saying, hey, you can inhabit the promised land. I just want you to rule and subdue it in the way that I want you to rule and subdue it. And what do the people do? They mess up and they're forced to leave their home in the promised land. Just like Adam and Eve, who had the ability to rule. But what happened? They messed up and they're forced to leave their home. And so now you don't see exile as something that's just this one-time event. You realize that exile is the human condition. That inside of every one of us is a concept of home. A concept of Genesis chapter number one where we get to live in perfect harmony and symmetry with God ruling under him, obeying his authority. And now every time you interact with people or with pain or with sickness or with homelessness or with greed, something in your heart doesn't sit right. Why? Because you are longing for home you are experiencing because of your sin and because of my sin and because of all sin you are experiencing exile and that's the fill in the blank there from genesis to jesus it's all about man's attempt to go back home and just in the moment that man is ready to give up 
They, they start because they start erecting their own idols and they're like, hey, I'll just worship this thing and I'll find this new place to live and, and this will be my home. But there's always something lacking, just like you and I, no matter how much we get and no matter how much we do, there's always a part of us that's missing a little bit of a fulfillment. Why? Because we have a desire for home that we can never create. And in the Old Testament, just when they were ready to give up, goodness, I love the Bible. Just when they were ready to give up, you see these prophets, God, and they show up and they start telling the people about this man who's going to show up one day and he's going to take us all back home. And that's what went wrong. And I'm not going to get ahead of ourselves and teach next week's sermon about God's solution. But that's why Jesus shows up and he says, I am the way. Because he knew that you and I have baked inside of us a desire for a close, harmonious relationship with our father. And just like the lifeguard when I was floundering and had no way of getting myself out of a situation God sends Jesus to pull us out and to bring us home and to show us a new way to rule a new way to live a way that perfectly embodies what God created us to be in Genesis chapter 1 so as we leave today there's two things if you're in the room today and you're like hey I've been searching for this this is what I've been looking for like this is the answer this is what I've been feeling I just want to go home then as soon as we leave today I just want you to go right out there to that next step center if you're online then I just want you to type down in the chat click on the link that they're dropping if you're at one of our campuses go to the next step center and say hey I, I need to know this man named Jesus and what it means to go back home but if you know the way back home right already, then your responsibility is twofold. It is, hey, now you start telling other people about this way back home and we all become sojourners. That's why the Bible says we are in this world, but not of it because we are on a journey now to go back home. And in that journey, you daily make the same decisions that Adam and Eve had a chance to make. Are you going to rule in the way that God would like you to rule? Are you going to redefine good and evil in your own heart and in your own mind? And today, I encourage you, rule how God has told you to rule. Because under the kingship of the Lord, there's covering, there's comfort, there's grace. I told you about that word, avon, the word forgiveness in the Bible. When you translate it, it really just means God carries the avon for us. The crookedness that you caused and deserve, God lifts your consequence. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the fact that you have created us a home. Dude, Jesus, Jesus, you even told us that you go to prepare a place for us. To prepare a home. So God, this week when we're disgruntled, 
and we're sick of this life and we're tired of the pain and we're tired of our children not getting it right and we're tired of our spouse not being perfect and all of those things God when we're tired of not getting promoted and other people are promoted around us when we're tired of seeing greed or pride or racism or jealousy or envy and all of those things God remind us that the fact that those things even bother us is proof that one day you're going to take us back home And God, when we remember that, I pray that in that moment, we would be lit on fire with the desire to live the way that you want us to live. And that we would tell everybody else about this new home that we're going to one day experience. Father God, thank you so much for being a great, great God to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody together say it.